Welcome to the podcast of Harvest Baptist Church in Harvest, Alabama. We invite you into our sanctuary as we dive into God's Word with our pastor, Dr. Al Perringer. Well, I want to look in Genesis chapter 9 uh, tonight and uh, look at the first half of, of uh, the, the chapter. We've been doing a deep dive in, into Genesis, giving a foundation to what it is that we believe, because, I mean, everything kind of springboards from here. And, you know, we, we've studied how God has created the physical universe. Uh, humanity is like the epitome of his creation. We were made as his imagers. We were to subdue and take dominion over creation in his name. But then sin was introduced into creation, and sin immediately had disastrous effects. I mean, right away, I mean, the, the next generation, the first murder happened. And then sin so permeated humanity that ten generations from initial creation, God was grieved enough and he regretted having made man enough that he decided to destroy all flesh with the flood, except one small remnant. Noah, it says, found favor in the eyes of God. And so God called him to build this ark that would house and protect this remnant from the judgment that he would unleash. And so God shut them up in this ark. He unleashed the storm. The storm raged and destroyed everything, just as God said. After about a year, those in the ark would disembark and they would start to repopulate the renewed earth. And so that's where we pick up the story. Beginning in Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, let me read verses 1 through 7. As we take a look at a new beginning for creation, a new beginning for creation. In Genesis 9, starting verse 1, it says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea into your hand, they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, and as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. It's a new day, a new dawn. Noah is like a second Adam. Whereas the first Adam, you know, he was the first man of creation. Noah is the new man for this new world after the great judgment that God sent upon the earth. And from him, all the, the remnants, uh, uh, you know, all the inhabitants of the earth would come from him and from his son. So Noah is beginning, or God is beginning again with Noah and his sons. And you notice that you know, you can tell this is kind of a new day, a new dawn, because God reiterates to Noah and his sons the same exact, uh, if you want to call them instructions, charge, 
that he had given Adam. And it, it actually it kind of bookends in verses 1 and 7. So that's kind of how you notice this is a section because God bookends it with this charge that he gave humanity. God tells humanity to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth again. Like God's imagers, yes, sin marred the image, but the image was not taken away. They were still to do the original intention of humanity, subdue and take dominion over the earth. That had not changed. Now, things were going to be a little bit different than what was originally intended, but sin didn't so completely take away humanity's purpose for existing. As one author stated it, the blessing of procreation and dominion conferred upon the post-diluvian world is a restatement of God's creation promise for the human family and the creatures. But now its provisions are modified in light of encroaching societal wickedness. So, God originally, you know, gave that charge to Adam and Eve for what was to be the perfect world and the perfect situation. And sin changed all that. And so, so God, he gave the charge again, but then he put some modifiers in there in light of sin. Just because God destroyed the world by the flood didn't mean sin all of a sudden disappeared. Sin obviously did not, considering in, even in our day and age, we see the effects of sin. We see what it is doing to our society. We see what it's doing in the world, the wars that it creates, the conflicts that it creates is because of sin. And so, you know, sin would still be around. And so God, he, he, he said, humans, you're still to do what I told you to do. But now, you know, there's, there's some modifiers in there in light of what has happened. And so God would need to set some rules and boundaries to curb mankind's sinful tendencies to ensure the, their continuation on the earth and it, in, until the plan of redemption would be fulfilled and completed. Um, now, it should be noted that these, if you want to call them blessings, commands, and rules, and how, whatever you might want to call them, they're given here before the Mosaic Law. And, and so these are things to be considered just until Christ returns. And so, yes, they are, human, humanity is still supposed to be fruitful and multiply. You know, that's, that, that, that's, a, that's a blessing. It's called a blessing. What's so sad is our society tries to tell us that it is not a blessing. But when you look at Scripture, whether it's by biology or adoption or whatever, children are always viewed as a blessing from God's hand. And anything that disparages that idea comes from the evil one, whether it's the murder of abortion, whether it's degrading motherhood and fatherhood by ultra-liberal... Anyway, you know what I'm talking about. Where they say, oh, motherhood and fatherhood's a burden. Motherhood and father... Look, especially, let's, let's face it, the ultra-liberal feminists, ladies, 
Don't, you don't want to be burdened by that. Be free from all that. Well, you know what? That, that's, that's the wrong view. Now, not everyone has children. Not everyone is able to have children. But we don't disparage children because everywhere you look in Scripture, children are a blessing from the Lord. And we are called to be fruitful and, and multiply on the earth, and that's valuable in the eyes of God. And if, it's, if something is valuable in the eyes of God, guess what? It should be valuable in our eyes as well. And so this is, that is why this is the first command God says to Noah in this new beginning. I mean, that must be important if he repeats it, right? If he uses it as bookends to, this, to, to what he's telling Noah to do, be fruitful and multiply and, and fill the earth. Says it twice. But in the new reality of what was going on in the earth where sin and evil would increase still, the relationship between humanity and creation would be different. It would be different than what was originally intended. The relationship between mankind and creation would no longer be friendly. The relationship between mankind and the animal kingdom would no longer be in sync with one another. You notice how it says here that there would be fear and dread of humanity over the beasts and the birds and the fish. Now, we notice by what is said that part, part of the reason for this is actually to protect humanity from the threat of continual animal attack. Not that animals don't attack humans, but it, it wouldn't be like a constant large-scale thing. But um, it, it, it would be for man's protection. It would be for animals' protection. It would be so that man would be a good steward of what was given to them. Now, you know, it says you know, there would be this fear and dread by, by animals uh, to, to humans that 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 doesn't like preclude where humans could domesticate uh, animals for productivity but it would take a whole lot of time and hard labor to accomplish that you know here we are thousands of years later we're the recipients of the blessings of those who came before us who had to put in a whole lot of time and effort into domesticating animals for for our use you know it, it it didn't just happen that cows were kind of domesticated for farms or whatever, you know. It, it, it took a lot of work for, to get to that point. But there's this difference now in, in the relationship between humanity and, and creation. And there's something also that God added you will notice. God now made the provision that humans would be able to eat animals for food. Now before the flood, I guess you could say everyone were vegetarians, because, the, you know, if you read back in Genesis chapter 1, the, the original creation, it talks about how all the plants and the trees and all of that were food for humans and animals alike. But now animals were part of the diet. Now for the Jews, God would make a distinction between clean and unclean animals, some that were all right to eat, some that were not. It was just to make a distinction between uh, Israel and, and their neighbors and, and, and their pagan neighbors. But in the Gospels, it is recorded that, you know, Jesus, he, he gave some teachings 
that, I mean, the gospel writer makes this note that Jesus, by saying this, made all foods clean. Praise the Lord. All animals were were clean. So, amen, bacon and sausage. We're in good shape. That's a spiritual experience right there, y'all. But God does make some boundaries to his allowance for eating meat. Humans were not to eat meat with blood. Blood is representative of the life force of the animal. Now, it's actually kind of difficult to ascertain the meaning behind this prohibition. Um... It does seem to indicate that even with this new allowance of eating meat, animal life was still to be respected. It was not to be treated in a savage way. It wasn't to be abused. Um, You were not to drink the blood because, you know, God, it's their life force, and God alone is the giver and taker of life. And, And so life in all of its forms was to be respected. And so... Because life is to be respected, that's why God gave this next section uh, of rules. While animal life was to be shown some respect, ultimately human life is the most valuable and is to be treated with the utmost care. Because humans alone are made in the image of God. And no one, no one, is to just randomly snuff that image out. Because if you strike at a human being, you are striking at God. Because humans are made in the image of God. Now, death, human death, is a reality in this sinful world. Adam and Eve were warned, do not eat that fruit, because you will most certainly die. And so what do they do? They ate the fruit. So now humans most certainly die. But just because there is death, it was not up to man or beast to bring about that death. If someone were to bring about the death of a human, then they themselves would sacrifice their life for their actions. God requires a reckoning for those who would take away the life of another. Because life and death are in the hands of God alone. And we're not to be in the hands of man or animal. God alone is sovereign over life and death. And any man or animal that that would overstep that boundary, they were to be taken care of. In a sense, this is a version of the lex talionis, the law of retaliation. The consequence for intentionally murdering An innocent human life is that you would forfeit your own life. Now, Lex Talionis, you know, it it ensures that the punishment fits the crime. But murdering an innocent human being is the most grievous of offenses. And so it was to be handled as such. Human life is sacred. And we just don't willy-nilly treat it like like it's nothing. Human life is 
honestly, on the earth, the most valuable thing that there is. But now some might wonder how there could be this then distinction about killing the criminal. I mean, okay, you say human life is valuable, you're not supposed to take it. Well, then why would God direct that if, you know, you, you, that, that the criminal, that the murderer should be killed? Well, as one author stated it, capital punishment is not interpreted as a threat to the value of human life, but rather is society's expression of God's wrath upon, upon anyone who would profane the sanctity of human life. New Testament writings interpreted capital punishment as a necessary function of society where the state is defined as the divinely designated servant that administers retribution. Genesis removed personal vengeance and restricted blood feuding that led to reckless killing. It was, it was for the good of society. It was something that society would take, take care of. God gave it to the human society. But this was the new reality. Sin just had so permeated the world, and so this is the new reality at, at this time of new beginnings. And you know what? It's still the reality that we're, we're living in. And it's the reality we're going to live in until Christ returns. But we can't ever forget that human life is, is precious. And that some dictator is willy-nilly throwing bombs everywhere that now kills innocent children, there is a reckoning that will come. But God did not just leave humanity just kind of to flounder on its own. Because not only is there a new beginning in this new reality, but we notice also that God gave a renewed covenant. If you look at beginning in verse 8, and I'll read through verse 17 of Genesis 9. It says, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as uh, came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Several times in this passage, God says he is establishing his covenant with Noah and with all the earth and with Noah's descendants and the like. God is making an agreement whereby he promises the good of creation and mankind. He's, in one sense, renewing the original covenant that he had made with creation. But now, in light of the new reality of this new earth, he is also establishing some additional promises in light of what he did, especially in light of what he did with the flood. 
You know, in Genesis 6, 18, God promised that he would make this covenant. And now, here in Genesis 9, he is formally establishing the covenant. And he's telling Noah the terms of this, this covenant. Of course, all the terms fall on God. You notice that it's God who's saying he's establishing the covenant. Covenant. All of the obligations of the covenant rest solely on the Lord. He alone is making this commitment to this new world. And his promises are irreversible. Because the promises that God makes here in this covenant, they're not dependent on Noah. They're not dependent on Noah's sons. They are not dependent on any human being at all. God establishes his covenant. And God's character, his word, and his integrity stand behind the covenant. Just like it does all of the word of God. And that's how we know we can stand on that firm foundation. If God has said it, he will do it. Now, um, if we want to say of, of any additional promises that were added to the prior covenant to creation before the flood, God says he would never again cut off all flesh by floodwaters. He would never destroy the earth by flood again. I know with all the rain that we've had lately, we may have begun questioning that a little bit. But no, it hasn't gotten quite that bad, even though it might feel like it. So every time there's a big storm and you're wondering, hmm, is God going to... No, God said he would never again destroy the world by a flood. Now, we have to keep in mind, God's not saying he would never judge the earth again. And God's not saying that he wouldn't have regional judgments all around the earth. God is not saying that his righteous anger would not be put on display again. What he's saying is that he will not destroy the earth by flood again. And that's the extent of the promise. To give a reminder to humanity that he would never destroy the earth by flood again, God himself provides a sign to the earth that would remind future generations of this particular promise. And God says, you know, and, and God puts it in the terms of when I see it, when I see it, it's the rainbow. You know, and God says, when I see it, I'm going to remember the covenant, not that God's going to forget. But just that every time that we see the rainbow, we remember God has made this promise and he will hold to it. Now, by God saying, I place my bow in the, in the sky, that doesn't necessarily mean there were no rainbows before this, but it gives a new meaning if there were rainbows before this. So when you look at the beauty of a rainbow, I mean, not only do you just look at it and like, like, oh, that's beautiful. And not only do you then begin to wonder, you know, I really wonder if there is a pot of gold at the end of that thing, which there isn't, by the way. But every time you see a rainbow, you remember, you know what? God made a promise. And he kept that promise. And if God kept that promise, guess what? God's going to keep all the other promises that he gives as well. When we see the rainbow, we remember God's promises. We remember that God is faithful to his covenant. I mean, all these thousands of years later, God has not destroyed the earth by flood again. Now, trust me, we've given him ample reason to destroy the earth by flood and anything else. But this covenant sign reminds us that that covenant promise, all the covenant promises that are found in Scripture, God is going to keep those. Now, I find it weird 
And I don't know if ironic would be the word, but I find it weird and ironic that those who have decided to grasp onto a perverted lifestyle have chosen the rainbow as their symbol. You know, this symbol is there to remind people of the promises of God. But that symbol is also there to remind people of why it's there to begin with. The rainbow, it reminds us of the promise of God. He's not going to destroy the world by flood again, but it also reminds us that there was a flood and that God judges sin. And yeah, he might not destroy the world by flood again, but God will still judge sin. The rainbow reminds us that God takes sin seriously, so much so that he destroyed the world because of it. And sin is still under judgment. All sin. But the people who decide to grasp onto this symbol for their perverted lifestyles need to remember that God judges sin, and especially remember that God judged the two cities where their sin was so prominent. He didn't do it by flood. He kept his promise. But he sure did it by fire and brimstone. And so to hold on to a symbol of God's promise forgets the reason for the promise to begin with. And that's just perverted in and of itself. But it's also a reminder that God takes sin so seriously that he sent his son to the cross to die for it. And so we cannot twist God's promises in such a way as to excuse sin. Instead, may God's promises cause us to run to him for mercy that he so freely gives in Jesus Christ. I, I, that's my prayer for those who hold on to that symbol. You know, I just want to ask him, do you actually know what that symbol means? Do you know the story behind it? God judges sin. No, you might not be judged by a flood, but you will be judged. But you know what? You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you can be saved and you need to do it now because Christ is returning and when Christ returns he's returning in judgment and his judgment is going to be a whole lot worse than a flood and so the time is now to repent and believe but if you are a Christian, you praise God that he gives covenant promises and that he keeps covenant promises. And he has said that in Jesus Christ, believe in him and you have everlasting life. Not might have, could have, should have. You have everlasting life in Jesus Christ. And so we escape the judgment because the judgment was laying on him. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Harvest Baptist Church. 
For more information, visit us online at harvest-baptist.org or find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can also find info on our children's ministry on Facebook at Harvest Baptist Children's Ministry or on Instagram at KidsQuest underscore HBC. Our student ministries on Facebook at HBC Vertical Student Ministry and on Instagram at VSM underscore HBC. We welcome you to join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We are located at 8999 Waltrana Highway in Harvest, Alabama. Thanks for listening and God bless.